And welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manuel Galavan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. If you've been following the news recently, you probably have seen a lot about transgender rights, trans healthcare, and a rash of conservative laws and rhetoric that represents opposition to the trans rights movement, in addition to some generally good faith disagreement about the best practices for treating gender dysphoria in young people. Our guest today is going to help us understand the science and events behind the ongoing rejection of trans rights, but we aren't going to jump straight into politics stuff right now. We're going to start with the basics and then work our way there. And it's a great time to have this conversation too, because today is Transgender Day of Visibility. That's why we are so happy to have Dr. Quinnituckett Macklemore, pronouns they, them, with us today. They are a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Missouri at Columbia. Their training is in social psychology and biological psychology with expertise in conflict narratives, group identities, and conspiracy theories, as well as biopsychosocial models of stress and coping. They further have a background in research methods, research ethics, and quantitative analyses. They have provided consultation and guidance for researching trans issues to other psychologists for several years. They have also written for some of my favorite skeptical outlets like science-based medicine, and they're joining us today to discuss their recent article in Aeon on the topic of trans identity. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you all for having me here. I'm glad to be here and do what I can. Um, is, th- is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to our little description of your biography? That was as accurate as the disturbingly on the Mark Chat GPT, a summary of my research was. So <laughs> yeah, you got me. <laughs> right on. Dr. McLemore, you are our first guest to join us to discuss trans issues, and we really want to scaffold the conversation and help people understand the issue in a broad sense, and then cover some of the complexities that you discussed in your article on this topic. So first, I was hoping you could help us understand what it means to be transgender. What does it have to do with the term gender dysphoria, and how do these ideas rub up against the traditional notions of gender and sex? This topic ideally would be handled by a panel of folks. I am first and foremost a social psychologist and misinformation researcher, not a philosopher of gender, for example. But Mm -hmm. from what I can do and from what I can tell you, just as the basics, let's start with the term transgender. It's a very broad term that describes essentially folks whose experience gender does not match that with which they were initially labeled when they were born. So for example, Laverne Cox is a high profile transgender woman. Elliot Page is a high profile transgender man. Transgender is the mirror term of cisgender. Cisgender means people who are experiencing congruence between the label they were given at birth and how they experience their gender in daily life. For example, to the best of my knowledge, Joe Biden is a cisgender man, and Jane Fonda is a cisgender woman. These are technical terms. They're not employed as a type of slur. A a lot of people online are not used to being called a cis person because it's sort of the invisible normal. It's a descriptor in front of their gender, and they're not used to seeing that, but it's it's not there to demonize anyone as annoyed as young people can be when using the term. This gets a little fuzzier with people like me because I'm what's known as non-binary, meaning I do not fall within one of the two most common buckets 
that gender falls into. My experienced gender is neither strictly masculine nor feminine, and I have little, if any, attachment to a specific gender identity, to be completely honest. I would describe myself as transgender. Other non-binary people would not. There is disagreement among communities of people who are non-binary or intersex. That's people born with characteristics associated with the biology that's typically labeled male or female. Non-binary and intersex people have varying opinions on whether we count as trans. This gets even more difficult when you get to historical persons because transgender is a relatively modern term, similar to how homosexuality is a relatively modern term. These labels that we use these days are very difficult to backdate. You may have heard the term two-spirit at some point in your life. That's a term that originated in the 1990s when Native Americans and First Nations people in Canada who had a different gender identity that had a prescribed, long prescribed role in their cultural norms got together and came up with a collective label for those terms. Two-spirit in particular is very specific to certain Plains Native tribes. Again, these labels are very modern and are useful for us in describing ourselves today, and it gets very fuzzy backdating it historically. For instance, um, we might today describe Spartan soldiers as bisexual because ancient Spartans were encouraged as a cultural institution to rail each other as well as their wives. But the concept of sexual orientation did not exist at the time because it originated in the 19th century in order to have terms like heterosexual and homosexual to get around the fact that previously we just called anything involving homosexuality sodomy and jailed or executed people for it. (laughs) So I think this fuzziness is why cisgender folks have a tough time understanding transness as a concept, because questions like what is a woman or can you differentiate sex and gender are not that straightforward when you actually think of it from a definitional perspective. There are a ton of functional definitions you could give. But all of them would have numerous exceptions. At extreme examples, there are people born with a penis that have two X chromosomes. There's a process called crossing over when you have genetic disjunction that can yerk the SRY gene off a Y chromosome, slap it on an X chromosome, and then you have two X chromosomes, but you develop androgenized. And I also just want to jump in here just in case people don't remember their high school biology. But the thing we tend to learn in high school biology is that if you are of the male sex, that you have an XY chromosome and you have testosterone and you have like these these markers. But really, you can I think most people in their biology classes probably learn it as XY is by definition male and XX is by definition female. And you're saying that there's more complexity there even. Even on that very basic level, there is all of this extra complexity. Absolutely, because genetics are, well, fuzzy. There are always exceptions to a rule. You have someone like Castor Semenya over in the Olympics who does have a Y chromosome, but she is not trans. She was born assigned female at birth, but she has a Y chromosome. She has a mutation that causes her body to be insensitive to androgens, and so she did not develop features we associate with masculinity in the womb or at puberty. It's pretty dang rare numerically, but if you have a large enough population, you're going to see people like that. And then there's intersex people, people who just broadly have something that makes them fall out of that norm. Whether they describe themselves as trans or not, that is that's up to them. Many don't. The problem here is that things that we are taught as absolute in biology in high school, you know, for conveniences, for learning how genetics work, for learning the basics, they don't really cover exceptions to the rule. The last part of Manny's question initially had to do with the concept of gender dysphoria, and gender dysphoria is not the same thing as being trans. What it refers to 
is the distress that someone feels at the mismatch between their experienced gender and what their body does and how people treat it. So for me, being non-binary, um, I personally would score very low on a gender dysphoria scale. That's because what is disordered, according to the most recent DSM, is the distress itself, not being trans. Being trans is a normal, if uncommon, part of the human experience. What rises to the level of disorder is the distress that can result from that. You, you actually answered one of my follow-up questions. I was just about to say, well, there, you know, there is a difference between being trans and having gender dysphoria. So I'm, I'm glad that we clarified that because I think that's a very important part. And to put a little bit more, add a little bit more to what you were saying in terms of context, the DSM is constantly being revised. And we are in the fifth edition of this now. So the specific language and terminology has changed significantly from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, which was published, I think, in 2013. Correct. Yeah. So so now there there is no gender identity disorder listed in the DSM. It is listed as gender dysphoria. And that I think that was a good summary that the uh, diagnostic criteria involve distress, not one's identity. I just want to, as final context on this initial dive into what being transgender is, I just wanted to add that, and I think one of the reasons why this is such an important topic for a lot of people and people get very animated by it, is that trans people are a highly marginalized group of people. Um, they're more likely to deal with social rejection, bullying, family rejection, more likely to experience discrimination, stigma, harassment. They're more likely to experience inter intimate partner violence, sexual assault, lethal violence uh, relative to the rest of the population. They also lack robust legal protections when they're discriminated against in the housing and the hiring context. And so I think like for people like us, you know, the purpose of the show is to talk about the problems of society and what we can do about them. There is a problem with the way trans people are treated in our society. And so Anything that that all, all the conversation around, you know, healthcare access and and the way that we treat people, it, it's for a group that is highly marginalized. And that's why it's just very important that we get this right and that we figure out how to how to have a society that is welcoming and open to trans folks. Manny, I just wanted to double click on that because I know you're a, a policy guy and I, I guess it would help for extra context about non-discrimination legal protections I think in the in the article you linked to, it was basically saying that there was a Supreme Court decision that basically said gender identity would now be included in non-discrimination protections, but there isn't federal non-discrimination law from a legislative right. standpoint. So I, 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 is there any more clarification you want to give there? So there, there, there exists some protection, but that we would like to see it codified into law, that kind of thing? I can explain on that front first. One thing I should note is that Bostock versus Clayton County, um, that court case that you're referencing, that banned firing someone for transitioning, was very recent. That happened in 2020. It wasn't even until 2009 that attacking trans people was a hate crime. Any legal protections that trans people do have are very new and not anywhere near far-reaching. It's also worth noting that almost the second that they were proposed, conservatives immediately started trying to roll them back or gut them in, in district court legislation. Michael Knowles, you know, the man who says we must eradicate transgenderism, that guy? Right. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology 
at every level. He actually stated on Twitter that the first step of his plan to do this is overturn Bostock versus Clayton County, the case that grants us these existing legal protections that is relatively new. That is explicitly the goal as articulated at CPAC. So these protections, um, unless they are codified into federal law or at least into state laws, they're not going to last. Let's be real. Roe v. Wade got overturned. Right. And after 50 years of saying that that was not going to get overturned and so we didn't need to codify it, it got overturned. And the funny thing is exactly the same legal groups, Alliance Defending Freedom, Focus on the Family, um, Heritage Foundation, all the same groups and lobbyists that were involved in overturning that have gone hardcore on trans rights. This is why federal protections matter. This is why codification matters, because as long as you leave that wiggle room there, they're going to see it as a potential political strategy. Okay, so let's switch gears a bit and talk about what transition looks like for adults. So how long do most people take to kind of go through the the decision on how or if to transition? And can you tell us about social transitioning and then medical transitioning and what those things typically consist of? The thing is, especially for adults, that is an extremely individualized process. And what transition looks like for any given person is heavily influenced by not just what's going on in their head and their heart, but on basic logistics. Trans people don't decide on a whim that they're trans. It it might seem sudden if they lack the words to articulate it before. Just to use my example, because I can only speak for myself here, really. When I was very young, I realized that I resisted being labeled a boy. I realized that I was deeply fascinated by the idea of sex changes when I saw it in an episode of South Park because my deadbeat mom had no idea how to raise a kid. So whenever she had me, she just stuck me in front of a TV. I was fascinated that that was a thing that was possible, but I didn't really internalize the idea until I was an adult with disposable income and could realistically understand what being trans actually was besides a punchline on a Jim Carrey flick or a late night cartoon. See, Mm -hmm. this brings me to my next point. There's going to be a lot of cohort effects here. I am qualitatively different than someone that transitioned in the 1970s or the 1980s. The experiences and gatekeeping facing them is nothing like what I would have faced. And I'm also nothing like Gen Z. These people grew up with transness not being a taboo in public life. There was this period where you could talk about it and you could, even relatively young, even with children's books, you could understand what being trans was in a way that wasn't, you know, a gross punchline on a subpar cartoon that only adolescents would think is funny. To use an example who's not me, just because they've talked about this publicly, Elliot Page recalls that he'd wanted to do something like transitioning until he, like, since he was a small child, but he didn't realize it was possible until his adulthood. And he didn't pursue it further because... At the time, he didn't really internalize that was a thing he could do until the cultural moment shifted and he realized that, yes, this is a thing that he's allowed to do. The thing about transitioning is that um, because it involves steps that are very heavily medicalized and very heavily policed legally, you have to consider these logistical factors when you do transition. Like, it's currently 2023 in the U.S. There are not a lot of universal standards in place for adult transgender medicine because It's very individualized what people need and where they're coming from. There are guidelines and suggestions set out by WPATH standards of care, and clinics do typically follow those guidelines or at least try their best to follow them. The problem is paying for shit gets complicated in a country that has no healthcare system. Or no, no, like standardized universal access to healthcare system. You you have to have private insurance and it's got to be good to cover Uh this kind of thing. Well, here's the thing. 
Insurers have fairly strict requirements for what they cover. I'm going to say the mean. Thanks, Obama. See, <laughs> he passed a ruling in 2016 on Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which on paper mandates that insurers cannot refuse to cover care just because it's related to transition. Trump overturned that, and then Joe Biden expanded that. That is one of the things he has legitimately done for trans Americans that I will always give him credit for, even if I have my issues with the man. The way it happens now is whether you have access to good care or not depends on what hospital and what clinician you got access to. Mm-hmm. Some of our clinicians are very good at what they do, and their hospitals are very considerate and very competent, and they will fight tooth and nail to make sure that you get the best possible care. I think what you've done is really laid out all of the complexities around a person making the decision whether to transition or not. And there's a ton of stuff about whether they have that kind of exposure to that possibility in the first place, whether they are in a place that is supportive of, of that, what which is very much related to what cohort you're coming from, the kinds of policies that were in place. But let's say that a person is making the decision uh, once they make the decision to transition, how does that work? I think we mentioned uh, social transitioning and we mentioned uh, medical transitioning. So, and there's also this gender affirming care model that I'd, I'd hope you, you can guide us through a little bit. Social transition is when you start living in a different type of gender role. I am currently wearing a dress, for instance. Some other people that would social transition might use a new name or use new pronouns. I use they, them. That's an element of social transition. For children, oftentimes they'll get like a haircut and a new wardrobe entirely. Like, you know, little trans mask boys will cut their can cut their hair short, get themselves a masculine name and start wearing, you know, little polo shirts usually, I think. But you see what I mean? Social transition is usually something as innocuous as changing a name or um, changing your wardrobe, changing your hair, and then playing around with pronouns to see what fits better. No medical intervention whatsoever, None especially for children. whatsoever, especially for children. Now, medical transition is where things get a little fuzzy because there are a lot of things that could be considered medical transition. Electrolysis of beard stuff could be considered medical transition. You know, getting this guff off me. I literally shaved today, and because of my Russian Jewish genes, it's already growing in. That could be considered a component of medical transition. And insurers could be on the hook for that. Other components of medical transition that people typically think of involve, for adults, hormone replacement therapy, for teenagers, hormone replacement therapy. And that involves taking hormones different than the one that your body endogenously produces to affect changes in your body, which is does a lot of interesting stuff. Fun fact, you know the reason the Matrix pill is red? Mm, I've heard this, yeah. I'm estrogen with red. Yep. See, yeah, the Matrix is trans, always has been. Something people may not know is that the the directors of the Matrix are two trans women. At the time, estrogen was taken as a pill. Um, testosterone is often injected. And the reason I mentioned both of these is that you have to remember to take your hormones. Much in the same way that you have to remember to take birth control, there are ways around that. You may be familiar that some people who can get pregnant will get an implant in their arm, right? So they don't got to do that. Technically, that's surgery. So a lot of teenagers who will get gender-affirming surgery, what they're actually doing is they're just getting a hormone implant in their arm so that they don't have to remember to take the stupid thing every day. Mm. This is where we get into differences like what counts as surgery, what counts as different types of medical transition, because there is a lot of, quote, gender-affirming surgery that has nothing whatsoever to do with what you're thinking of when I say gender-affirming surgery. For instance... If a trans woman starts taking estrogen, right, she's going to develop some breasts, usually, but say they're about, you know, an A cup or something, and they're disappointed that their genetics cheated them out of that one. 
A boob job for them could qualify as gender-affirming surgery, ignoring that these are utterly uncontroversial when done to cis women who want them for the same reason. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say utterly uncontroversial because there's there's a, there's a faction of feminists who would disagree with you. I on know, that. I know. <laughs> and they're going to be mentioned here. I'm sorry. Yep. And and conservatives who it's That's like fair. it'll be, you know, not traditional to get breast implants or whatever. Sure, so, so you know, the, the funny thing about that is um, this actually does come up in Irreversible Damage. That book Abigail Schreier wrote on this. She mm-hmm. talks at length about her objection to boob jobs as well. I will say that this it is less controversial among relatively informed people and outside of conservative circles and certain rad femme groups with that asterisk there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Facial feminization surgery is more, um, you know, it's going under the knife to have some plastic surgery done to your face to feminize the general appearance of it. Some folks undergo this. Gender affirming surgeries take a lot of forms, but top surgery, it's bluntly a mastectomy um, and reconstructive surgery there. Some people get it. Some people don't. And then there's genital surgery. Some people get that. Some people don't. Some trans women get a vaginoplasty. Some don't. There are a lot of trans men that, for whatever reason, they decide to keep their uterus. I've heard trans fathers refer to it as dadhood on hard mode, jokingly, because they bear the child. Some people want that out. Some people don't. That choice reflects their bodily autonomy. These treatments are designed, at least from what I've read, they're designed to prevent gender dysphoria and to alleviate the uh, mental health problems that are associated with being trans in a trans exclusive environment, exclusive environment. Right. So we have a society in which if you are trans and you want to be trans, you often are just encountering people who are not accepting you. And you often feel like your the way you look doesn't match your, your internal personal experiences. And so we have these treatments that alleviate that harm, those those potential problems. And so in the broadest strokes, that is correct. Like in the broadest strokes, these treatments were initially developed as a way of alleviating the distress that comes from the mismatch between one's body and one's internal experiences. But it's a little deeper and more complex than that because a lot of it comes from essentially an informed consent perspective when it comes to adults. So the thing is, gender dysphoria is a major reason why people do pursue these surgical transition procedures. It's not necessarily the only reason. We should bear in mind that people differ from each other a lot. Some transmasculine people will have dysphoria because of the menstruation cycle and the role and shifts that that imposes upon them. And they will seek a hysterectomy because that will assist with their dysphoria. Other transmasculine people have little to no dysphoria about this and would be fine keeping their uterus and even having kids with it. But said uterus is prone to dangerous, heavy periods, and they have a family history of uterine cancer. So in that case, them having a hysterectomy would not necessarily be a gender-affirming procedure, you see. Them having hysterectomy would just be precautionary. It's also worth noting that sometimes people will do things that are for practical reasons. Did you know that trans women can breastfeed? No. Oh, let me explain. All humans are born with milk glands. We know from experience with lesbian families that if you stimulate with the correct hormones and the right procedures, the non-childbearing mother, she can help nurse to supply additional milk because milk production is actually very difficult to do. As of 2018, it's actually someone actually had the idea, hey, hang on, what if we tried this with a trans woman? 
because see, a trans woman's partner was producing subthreshold milk, and due to the formula shortage that we're in, they had this idea. Hey, hang on. I've got milk glands, right? What if you did those same procedures to me? And it turns out that after hormone replacement therapy, you actually can do that. It's relatively new as far as procedures go. But was that a gender affirming procedure or was that a practical choice someone made to help feed their baby? Mm -hmm. See, this is where you start running into questions like this, because if there's things they can do and it occurs to them that they can do it, they might do it for reasons entirely unrelated to their gender, but just because it assists their daily life in some other way. Like, I see what you mean. Yeah. See what I mean? No, that, that makes sense. So I, I take your point and I think there's a broader point here that is like w- there's an af- informed consent model in play here. People we've been doing this with cis people for a very long time. Cis people can go in and say, I want breasts. The doctor has the obligation to inform them of the risks that they're undergoing to get that procedure done. But they can ultimately go get those. A cis woman can go get breast implants just because she wants them. And in mm-hmm. some sense, we, that needs to be the model we have for trans individuals, too. It shouldn't just be, I need this because it'll save me from the suicide rate of trans people. It should just be that I just want this because I want this. The other thing that I'm thinking about, though, is like that there is a, a pretty robust literature that the kinds of negative outcomes we see in trans folks in terms of their mental well-being, in terms of suicidality, these kinds of outcomes, that is alleviated Mm-hmm. quite strongly by uh, gender affirming care. Um, and so and I think this all just gets to the, the the what gender affirming care essentially is, right? It's just like saying, you know, the doctor, you go into the office and the doctor, the doctor says, if you say that you are trans, I believe you. And I think you should get whatever care you think you should be able to get. And that engaging in that kind of process counteracts the kind of marginalization and discrimination and rejection that is experienced in society. And now you can get the care that helps you avoid that going further if that's the kind of thing that you're experiencing. Does, is that correct? That is correct. And I will also add another reason why that's important. We've been beating around the bush about this for a while. Um, regret for trans surgeries is very low. Like having a child has a higher regret rate than having trans surgery. Having a life-saving knee surgery or a cancer surgery all have exponentially higher regret rates. I'm pretty sure marriage has a 50% regret rate. So regret is very rare for trans procedures. But when it does happen, usually what they're regretting of is the procedure was botched in some way or they feel that the particular procedure was not the right method for them. And the reason this comes about is that without the affirmative care model, when you have a gatekeeping-based model in which doctor knows best and is very paternalistic, patients are encouraged to lie. You have to do it in order to get the care that you need most times. And this therapeutic distrust can lead to bad outcomes. And so under an affirmative care model, you see where I'm going with this, you have a much more higher likelihood of having a functional and beneficial therapeutic alliance. So if there are concerns, the patient feels empowered to bring them up. And this is why the gender affirming model is crucial, especially with adults even, because unless you've got that, you have this foundation of bad faith that is going to cause problems. Um, I I would just like to double click on some of the things that you've been talking about here. So I guess to reiterate, There is no one size fits all approach to transition. In some cases, transition makes sense because we are interested in alleviating gender dysphoria. And in some cases, there are other more practical reasons. And I, I guess one thing that I'm curious about, just to ask your opinion on this, do you think that 
gender dysphoria should be necessary for transitioning in adults? Like, do you think that should be a requirement for, you know, anyone to go through that process? And I'm also interested because we have you been using these terms, affirmative care and informed consent, but I'm not sure that we really explicitly defined what those things are. So we should we should do that as well. I will do that. So first off, informed consent for the non-scientists and non-doctors listening is essentially a model where if you have been sufficiently informed of the risks, unknowns, and potential benefits as well of a particular treatment or a particular anything, and you are of you know sound mind and in a full capacity to consent, you are able to consent to a procedure and that procedure should be available to you based on your ability to consent to it. Now, a lot of what the informed consent procedure looks like when it comes to gender affirming care is just informing them of the state of the literature and what things might do. The keyword being might. Most people who take hormones are not going to have particularly bad reactions to them. They are one of the safer procedures out there as far as medical procedures go. A knee replacement is objectively more dangerous than a hormone therapy treatment ever will be, but it's not impossible if you have pre-existing endocrine problems that it could cause some issues down the line. So those risks are typically mentioned in an informed consent procedure, but it's entirely possible that unless they're red flag, they'll go way over someone's head. So you want to make sure that you make sure that they know that, you know, this type of thing is recommended. This is the part where I have to tap out a bit because I'm not a doctor. You would want to talk to a gender affirming doctor to get some details on how this works in practice. I just know the generalities. Yeah. And so I think the informed consent issue is particularly interesting in the context of treating children. So let's jump to that as our next topic. What about healthcare for transgender children and how is gender dysphoria treated for kids and adolescents? Okay. First off, another disclaimer. If you want an actual expert on trans kids, Christina Olson or Catherine M. Gordon are where you want to go. They are people who respectively do some of the most cutting edge research on the psychological development of trans kids and on their medical procedures available to them, uh, respectively. From another angle, um, it might be worth talking to in future if this is something you dig into, the parents of trans kids who testify on their behalf on state houses because these parents pretty much have to be experts on the medical procedures because they get grilled pretty dang hard by Republicans in these. But I will say this. Terminology number one. Children is a broad category. I don't. This right. might be a hot take for you, but um, a 17-year-old is not the same thing as a four-year-old. <laughs> and when the right wing talks about transgender children, they tend to conflate these groups. Right. They yeah. even tend to throw in people 18 to 25 under the groups with children. My my favorite yeah. joke ever has been um, when they talk about the Boston Children's Hospital doing genital surgery on teenagers. And I look at the data. I'm like, wait, that's a 19 year old. I just want to double click right here. I mean, again, I I hear what you're saying and I agree. I don't necessarily think this is specific to the right wing. I think, you know, there there's OK, that is fair. Like, like I think there's many places in which people will tend to over infantilize teenagers and treat them like little kids. And there's questions about the age of majority and what kinds of limitations we should or should not be setting on teenagers. But I I take your point that there, and I couldn't agree more. There is a very clear difference between an eight year old and a 17 year old. And yeah, and even a 19 year old, if I hear some of my colleagues who teach at universities call their adult students kids. So, 
you know, that, that right. does happen. WPATH and most trans researchers do distinguish between children and adolescents. WPATH is? World Professional Association for Transgender Health, formerly the Harry Benjamin Institute for whatever. Um, the thing about WPATH standards of care eight is that they don't actually have age guidelines or cutoffs for particular recommendations regarding kids because here's the thing about children and adolescents that you may have noticed if you've ever interacted with either for more than about 15 seconds is that they go through similar stages of maturity and development, but the exact ages at which they go through this are fairly fuzzy. When you're talking about endocrine development and medical transition for adolescents, very relevant questions come to mind, such as what stage of puberty are they actually at? Have they developed the capacity to give informed consent for this procedure yet? These are the types of questions that get raised, and it's very unproductive to give these hard age limits that are arbitrary when what you're considering is stage. So for transgender medicine as a whole, what this means is that children, the term children that they use, right? This means has not started puberty yet. What's recommended for these youth, it's very simple. Let them be themselves. If your boy is playing with Barbie dolls, loves pink, and prefers to play with girls, and then tells you she is a girl, do not throw away the Barbies. Do not force him to enroll in Little League. We shouldn't force them to play sports, even if they're cisgender kids. So <laughs> I guess if we can, we can agree much. on that all around. Yeah. Well, some people, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the guidance is allow that child to explore new names, new pronouns, different clothes, and that's the guidance. Facilitate those changes and accept the kid that you have instead of the kid you thought you had when they were born. If they do eventually settle on a cisgender identity, so be it. If they settle on a trans identity and want to medically transition in adolescence, so be it. The guidance for these kids is essentially to let them develop as they will and do not try to abuse them into being cisgender. That, that's it. That's the guidance for children. Um, es essentially social transitioning and yeah. gender affirmation. Pretty much, yeah. Now, puberty is where things get complicated. They set this to a stage of puberty called Hanner Stage 2. Puberty can start earlier at this stage and this is where it gets complicated because someone at age eight or nine could already be in Tanner stage two of puberty. And this is a stage at which you would usually do medical transition at some point. Usually puberty blockers would be involved here. And there is an argument for doing that anyway because of precocious puberty, because around eight, this is where you start entertaining the idea that this might be precocious puberty. Blockers were developed for this purpose. They were yeah. developed mm -hmm. for kids going yeah, through it early. True. This is where it starts getting discussed because insurance and capacity and availability of care become relevant here. Puberty blockers don't actually reduce bone density. That's a common misconception. What they do is they stall your development where you are. Typically, when you're going through puberty, your bones get denser because sex hormones do that. For most youth, that's not a problem. But if you've got a kid who's already got low bone density or has pre-existing concerns like eating disorders or lack of weight-bearing exercise, you know, stuff that might butts with bone development. What doctors typically do is they'll recommend that these kids get on an exercise regimen and give them vitamin D supplements to try to scaffold their bone development. Catherine M. Gordon, the name I recommended, she does some cutting edge research on all this because the goal here among medical professionals is to scaffold as healthy a development as you possibly can while properly balancing risks and rewards. This is actually where most, if not all, of the actual debate begins. For kids that go through puberty, roughly on what we might consider a regular trajectory who hit Tanner stage 2 around 11 or 12, there's not any debate among serious professionals about that. When it comes to these earlier cases, though, this is where it gets fuzzy. 
So anyway, counter stage two is where blockers usually come in. Ideally, this is where you would have preliminary care, like scanning for bone density problems or scanning for pre-existing endocrine problems or, you know, looking at anything that could potentially be a fringe risk. But here's the thing. Insurance don't cover that preventative scan on most insurances. We kind of glossed over the and I maybe this is a separate conversation, but just the the clinical process of evaluating kids and the decision to go on puberty blockers. It, it, you know. That I have to plead the fifth on. I am not that kind of psychologist. Fair enough. Yeah. You want that? Ask a developmental psychologist and ask a, a clinical endocrinologist to provide gender affirming care. Right. I can't do that one ethically. I am pleading fifth. So um, past this stage, a little past this stage is where cross- Sorry, where hormone replacement therapy might start. So if you have a trans kid who comes out and seeks medical transition at age 15, you probably don't want to arbitrarily put them on puberty blockers for no reason. You can start them immediately on a hormone replacement therapy. This is also when fertility starts getting talked about. And again, fertility preservation is an iffy thing because we don't actually know in absolutes what hormone replacement therapy in and of itself does vis-a-vis fertility. We've seen a lot of transmasculine people capable of giving birth. To all accounts, their children are healthy. We know that hormone replacement therapy, especially in trans women, does reduce fertility, but it doesn't always result in full-on infertility, unless, of course, they proceed to bottom surgery, in which case, you know, obviously that's going to do something. Uh, Options get discussed at this point just in case. Um, usually things like sperm preservation or egg preservation. But here's the thing. That's expensive and rarely covered by insurance. So again, while ideally youth would be given an option for preservation at this point, whether or not they actually have that is usually contingent on money. You're probably seeing a pattern here, right? In terms of where we are now, we're about at late adolescence, you know, 15, 16, 17, that type of age. This is where surgical interventions come into play for some youth. Now, some adolescents do get top surgery. That's the removal of chest tissue um, and the reconstruction of the chest. It should be noted that this happens with cisgender boys too if they develop breasts. It's called gynomasticomia. Look it up. Most breast surgery at that age is actually in boys. There are some girls at that age who can get boob jobs um, or reductions or increases. Like, Pretty sure I knew some in high school. Yeah. Usually this isn't done until around age, you know, 17-ish. That's the average age even at pediatric gender clinics. But there are cases in which it has been done earlier. The Federalist is not making things up when they say that there were um, top surgeries done on 13-year-olds. They're just misrepresenting it. Those 13-year-olds were statistical outliers even at a specialist clinic. This also begs the question of how there was a top to remove, unless there was precocious puberty involved. Right, right, right. Which the puberty blockers that they oppose would have prevented. So um, just for context for for your listeners, I think going through some of the research that's been done on rates, I think could be helpful. And then maybe you could help contextualize uh, this article that was on Reuters. Um, So they there was this Reuters article. It'll be in the show notes. So between 2017 and 2021, there were only four thousand seven hundred and eighty uh, adolescence this is and they're kind of that's a, this is kind of an early adolescence too because it's six to 17 who started puberty blockers and had a gender di- uh, dysphoria diagnosis and for the rest of these statistics it'll also be consistent with the thing i'm talking about plus having gender dysphoria as a diagnosis so um in addition to that only fourteen thousand adolescents started replacement hormones 
Uh, surgeries are extremely rare. Between 2019 and 2021, there are 56 across the entire United States genital surgeries and 776 mastectomies in the U.S. from 13 to 17-year-olds, probably on the upper end of that scale, but I can't see the data. For context, a lot of this is from rates that are based on health insurance claims. Some people decide to pursue these treatments without insurance coverage, so they could be an underestimation. There's probably other reasons why it could be an overestimation. We just like we don't entirely know, you know, of these rates necessarily, but this is one article. What do you think about this data when you saw it? Well, I had two thoughts about this data when I saw it. The first was, holy shit, that's pretty invasive. How'd they even get this? Um, mm. But on the other hand, once I got over my gut reaction there, my initial thought was, what this says to me is lack of supply and lack of adequate training. So let me explain. You want to know, I, I can send you some papers for this for the show notes after this. Please remind That'd me. That'd be great. Yeah. You want to know. How many hours on average a doctor gets covering trans people in their med school training? Probably like, I don't know, a couple days, one hour, one singular. And Jeez. it's usually in as late as 2018. And it's usually in the context of a broader presentation about queer issues. See, most doctors are not equipped to handle trans issues and they know it because it's not a particularly profitable area of medicine, despite what conspiracy theorists will tell you. It's not a huge demographic, okay? And so, and also insurers don't cover a lot of this stuff. So a lot of this stuff don't get done. So there aren't that many people with the expertise to actually be able to administer hormone these hormones or perform these surgeries. What this suggests to me is that in part there's a backup of demand, as in there are people that would seek out hormone replacement therapy or puberty blockers if they could access them, but they're not able to access them due to geographic proximity, wait lists, or lack of area of expertise. Like that is one thing this says to me. However, it's also worth noting that a lot of clinics set internal age minimums. So WPATH does not set a formalized rule or recommendation most of the time. What they'll instead do is they'll give you a recommended stage or range of potential ages or something, and then clinics will set their own internal guidelines. Most clinics won't do top surgery until about, they'll usually have their age limits being 15 or 16 these days. 16 is more common. Um, and so they won't do it until that age. Part of the justification for doing that is that you don't want to do top surgery until the tissue has been fully developed because you don't want more tissue growing after you take the thing off. That can cause complications. And the other thing is it also depends on when they came into the clinic, how long they've been on the list, that sort of thing. There's all these complexities that come into place. Genital surgery is almost never done. It's been described as on par with late-term abortions in terms of how common it is. Uh, right. You can see from the Reuters report that it was like a single digit over the last three – it was like double digits over the last three years. I think the number is like 56 or something. Yeah, yeah. Like it's relatively uncommon even in a population – in the US. And part of the reason for that is most clinics have an internal policy that they will not do that surgery on minors. But when right. it is done, I can send you some notes on this for the show notes. Um, on the rare occasion that it is done, there's usually some justification for it. Like, well, about a week till their 18th birthday, we could do it now or we could do it in three years. Screw it. It's usually decisions like that. Um, where it's done for practical reasons or when there's like a severe, and I mean a really severe 
justification for dysphoria or something like this stuff is done in extenuating circumstances when it is done at all. Most clinics have a hard no on that front. I mean, yeah, I think that's what the stats are useful for is that it, it is occupying so like so many people, trans people are just living in their head rent free and they're just worried about trans issues and worried about the number of kids who are being involved in some kind of medical procedures. There's this great clip of Matt Walsh talking on the Joe Rogan experience about the millions of kids who are being negatively affected. How many people have had this done? Depends on what. I don't think we have exact numbers, but it's if we're talking about the drugs, it's, I mean, millions. Um, are you talking I, about hum- hormone blockers? Yeah. Millions of kids have been on hormone blockers? Really? Uh I'm sure someone's going to fact check me on it, but my 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 guess is that we're in we're into the millions now at this point. Yeah, that would be my guess. Um, uh, that's a very small number, if that's right. It I'll says over the last five years, there were at least four thousand seven hundred eighty adolescents who started puberty blockers and had a prior gender dysphoria diagnosis. This says it's kind of undercounted, but that's that would be a big less than a thousand people a year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess, you know, hundreds of thousands at this, but I could be wrong. Million sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, the media matters will have a fun with that clip. Yeah. Matt Walsh claims it. Most. And so, so yeah, I, I just think it's important to, like, contextualize the issue for people. If they're, like, very concerned about this, it's, like, a very small percentage of the population. We are we are getting so close to time. Dylan has to go right at four, which we got about a minute left. We're going to have to cut it here, but I think we've covered a lot of the basic information that people should have on this issue, and you've added a ton of complexity for us and for the audience, and I really, really appreciate you being here. Yeah, we're, we're very thankful for your time, and I'm sorry that, uh, yeah, I have to run, but I, I honestly, I, I feel like we we scratched the surface. Like, I, there, there's so, we there's did, so yeah. much more to discuss, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to, you know, continue, and yeah, uh, thank you again. I do have to run, and it was nice I, to meet you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll wrap up, Dylan. Uh, thank you so okay. much. Okay, all right, bye. Thank you again for being with us. I do want to finish on one question that we tend to end our episodes on. So imagine you are in another dimension, and you're looking at a panel of dials that control human behavior. There are dials that control small things, like how often people uh, leave their computers on overnight. And there are dials that control really big things, like uh, how quickly we will be moving into uh, a climate change catastrophe in the future. Um, so the question is, do you move a dial? Uh, because you can just conjure up any dial you can imagine, and then it's right in front of you, and you can change something about human behavior. Do you move a dial? If so, which one and how much and why? Okay, so I actually can tell you this one. I've actually thought long and hard on a question like this. Um I apologize. I'm going to be a little verbose here. I think that's just kind of useful at this stage. But um, if I could change one dial, just one, about human behavior, it would be the dial that involves fact-checking claims that are made that are initially lurid and even if they don't immediately concord with our beliefs. And I think that this would help a lot of problems because we didn't have much time for this, but the anti-trans movement and the misinformation surrounding it is deeply wedded to the anti-vaccine movement. It's deeply wedded to anti-GMO movements. It is embroiled within 
other conspiracist movements. And if you look at anti-trans crowds for too long, you'll start seeing anti-vax dog whistles. You'll start seeing appeals to other conspiracy theories. And the reason why this is the case is that people don't check claims. They don't dig into complexities, and they're afraid of their initial perceptions of things being wrong. Rapid onset gender dysphoria, as I say in my paper there, is a solution in search of a problem. It holds that the sudden rise exponentially, I'm air quoting for those just listening, um, in trans youth existing is a problem that needs a solution, when in reality it's just, oh, they have the words to describe themselves now, and now they come out when they're in their teens rather than when they're in their 50s and miserable, assuming they survive that long. They, The definitions and scientific criteria that were used to describe trans youth in the 90s and 2000s, if you actually look at the stupid papers, right, you'll see that of these papers that say they grow out of it, seven out of 11 were done in a time period where being gay was still considered a mental disorder. And most of those were single digit participant pools of feminine boys who occasionally liked to cross dress and may or may not have ever been trans in the first place. That is not a robust evidence based. And this goes for climate change as well, because if you look at any study that says the climate isn't changing, you'll find that it's astroturf to hell and back by looking at its funders. The same goes for claims about trans youth. If you look at, for instance, this recent paper in Archives of Sexual Behavior, it becomes very apparent that the author has immediate conflicts of interest that are not fully disclosed in the paper. It becomes immediately obvious that he has a pet theory that he's aiming to defend and that he bypassed an institutional review board by recruiting a parent group that pickets outside clinics. If you look yeah, at any yeah. of this, it falls apart. and. People just don't like I've encountered this problem so much and it would solve so much if we just fixed that. Yeah, 100%. And I appreciate that. I think that's something we're trying to do with the show, too, mm -hmm. is just like give people the tools and information that they can use to think more critically about some of the stuff they're hearing out in the, in the world, because there is just an environment rife with people who are motivated to provide misleading if not flat out incorrect information to the people around them. I, I think uh, Dylan and I have a longstanding disagreement as to the extent to which misinformation is a problem that is being overblown or not. So we'll have to I'll have to wait for him to rejoin us and then we'll we'll talk more about that. But um, Dr. McLemore, thank you so much for joining us to talk about um, this topic and to be the first person we're going to have on to talk about it because we do want to keep returning to this and keep talking about this issue. Thank you. I'm sorry that we didn't get to talk much about ROGD, but hopefully this background at least is a good starting point. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at abitmorepod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.